HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. I am standing here at Future Farmer Headquarters in San Francisco, about to go and give a talk in New Zealand. And I am holding in my hands the third volume of the New Farmer's Almanac, which is a huge pleasure to um, celebrate the next edition of our um, Working Agrarian Literary Journal. And if you are into things like that, will you please order it? Um, we have many thousands of copies, and they are it's made very lovingly by many hundreds of happy helping hands, and it's pretty good, so that's my pitch. And today on the show, we have a wonderful fruit explorer and plantsman and rare fruit aficionado called Tom Baldwin, who lives in Hawaii. Welcome, Tom. Hi there. Um. It's really exciting to talk with you today about fruit exploring. I've been thinking about um, opportunity and the future in the context of climate change and young farmers, and I've been really motivated and laying out a little guidebook for um, fruit exploration, Greenhorn's Guide to Fruit Futurism, and I thought that maybe that could be the topic of our conversation, but maybe first introduce yourself and your qualifications. Well, I I mostly uh, focus on my own homestead and enhancing uh, the place here, which is it's just a pretty large fruit collection uh, that I'm developing specifically in avocados at the moment. Um, 
just uh, planting about 50 different types, some heirlooms in Hawaii and then just uh, well-known varieties from around Central America and the Caribbean and Hawaii. We have some very good avocados, and I live in a particularly nice area for that. So, um, and, you know, using that collection to then do propagation for nursery work as well. So, um, obviously, there's no there's no bad time to hoard biodiversity, but um, now seems like a particularly good time to hoard biodiversity. I wonder if you could talk about how um, your process of, of of plant collecting and how you go about how you go about it, um, and what communities you're a part of in pursuit of the plants that you're collecting and the varieties that you're collecting. Um, well, I just am a natural accumulator of of variety. So I don't know when that started exactly, but uh, probably when I lived in Ojai, uh, and I just really like the spread of diversity and fruit and variety, as well as like different, many different uh, minor fruits that you know m- most people have never heard of, or they just don't make like commercial uh, opportunities because they're perishable, they're too little, or they're not good enough. Um, the kinds of fruits kids like to eat. But uh, I just, I tend to get things, uh, there's a lot just locally, uh, there's a lot to to recognize, especially in Hawaii. We have a lot of resources, uh, nurserymen and different collections and botanical gardens and old neighborhoods with fruit trees. And then there's always the opportunity for people to travel since people are always on the move these days, and there's different ways to do that uh, that I suppose would apply to your uh, guide for collecting. There's lots to talk about there. Well, well, basically, I mean, so for your avocado project, your your goal, your goal, it seems like, is managing so that you have avocados every single day of the year, and so like season extension and delight of diversity. But I don't know. I was thinking that one of the things that feels important for the for the future of so many of our agricultural landscapes is to be thinking um, about how they're going to change in advance of their changing and be able to suggest and experiment with and perfect alternative crops and cropping patterns in places that are currently locked into extractive, unsustainable monocultures. And that there's um, an interesting legacy of that kind of thinking in the sugar. Um, The planter's Monthly, which was a newspaper of the sugar industry on Hawaii, um, which had an interesting panic in sugar prices. And the growers, who were mostly, you know, very large and consolidated producers of sugarcane for export, you know, in an annexation scheme in the United States, um, they were thinking that helping small farmers get access to small amounts of land in Hawaii would be a good way to figure out what other crops besides sugar could be grown in Hawaii and that that would be a way to for the for the island as a whole to diversify. So it feels like those are the kinds of opportunities for small operators and young people is figuring out ahead of time 
um, a little bit where the climate is going and doing some of that precursor work. And now, so if you think this is a bad idea, maybe you should shoot it down publicly and on air. <laughs> well, I, I think there are a lot of different crops. I mean, the, uh, people were really working on that about 100 years ago in Hawaii and finding lots of different things that they could grow because they were interested in developing various economies, and they were excited about what they could get a hold of. And so a lot of work was done, like, in the 1920s and even before in Hawaii. And so we know we have a good reserve and resource about, you know, what we can grow. But avocados, for instance, are high-calorie, fat, healthful, you know, it's, like, considered anti-inflammatory and healthful for the heart. And it's satiating and it's a real uh, staple type of fruit. So I think it, and with the prices soaring around the world for avocados, in fact, they, you know, 2016, they doubled from 2015. Um, there was also a strike in Mexico and, you know, drought in California so it triggered some of those problems. But what we do know is that on a homestead level, on a community level, it adds to just our resilience and food security. And also it creates a lot of opportunities for sharing and exchanging because avocados do grow. There's different varieties that can grow all year. You only need about maybe 10 different ones to have avocados all year around. But I happen to think with the you know loss of biodiversity and the loss of, like, forests in tropical areas that we've lost a lot of that, you know, genetic base as we move forward. So it's important that farms are repositories of, of crops, even if, it, if they're not the best ones, they still contain a lot of genetic information that helps us move forward and provide other flavors and other interests. Um, and that's, that's definitely what I'm interested in, um, in collecting. Today's program is brought to you by the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, period. Why? Lush grasslands, glacial water supply, fourth-generation cheesemakers, combining old-world tradition with the new ideas and highest standards. The very best milk. What do you think of when you think of Wisconsin cheese? For me, I think cheese curds, delicious fresh cheese curds, or deep-fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese Company, the operation behind the Pleasant Ridge Reserve cheese that's literally America's most awarded cheese. I think of the deliciously stinky Limburger and its long-storied history. I think about Raleigh's Dumbarton Blue, a perfect blend of English-style cheddar and notes of blue. I think of Emmy Roth's Grand Cru Chirchois, which was named 2016's World Champion at the World Championship Cheese Contest. Wisconsin is like the world champion of cheese, and once you start reading the list of cheeses made in Wisconsin on their website, you can see why. The Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board is a nonprofit organization funded entirely by Wisconsin's dairy farm families. Read more at eatwisconsincheese.com, and as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, eat Wisconsin cheese. It's a no-brainer. I wonder what the next phase of the avocado scene is going to be. I remember reading about um, trade protections of the California avocado industry that were, um, someone was telling me they were inflating the price of avocados because 
there was a constraint on how many avocados could be imported from Mexico. And I wonder, I wonder in all of this talk about walls um, in a, on the North American continent where the free flow of agricultural goods and agricultural workers has been the, um, the norm over the past decades, what might happen. It's really anybody's, it's not just climate change that's a factor, it's really anybody's guess how that's going to impact these markets. But for small yeah. players, it's not, it's not really relevant. I wonder if you know any more of the history of these conversations in Hawaii um, as a microcosm example, and you could tell us some of what, you, what you've learned in studying the history books or even in your own family. Well, uh, there's, you know, people did for a while export avocados to Canada, and there's some growers, mostly on the Big Island in Kona, that have exported to Canada because they didn't have the restrictions due to fruit fly. But now we've come up with uh, ways to ship. The, they've come up with guidelines for charwill specifically, which is kind of the one main long-season avocado, and you can ship to the United States if you have the right protocols and packing shed and stuff and enough of a crop. Some of the problem is there's just not big enough orchards planted in Hawaii, so it's a good opportunity to, you know, generate like an ex export crop. But one of the problems we have in Hawaii is just simply that, um, you know, most of the avocados people actually eat, or at least that are recorded in like, you know, food statistics are from other places like Chile and Mexico. Even though there's avocados like everywhere that grow naturally by the roadsides, wherever a seed happens to fall, they grow. They're not necessarily the best avocados, the seedlings, but um, people do eat a lot, and it's not recorded in the data. But, you know, as these kind of like large holding agricultural lands open up, avocados is a terrific crop. I mean, I think the U.S. statistics are like that California grows 7% of the avocados consumed, um, with Mexico and Chile, you know, filling in the majority of avocados. But the strike in Mexico was caused by the fact that they weren't paying the farmers enough money for their avocados, which I don't know exactly the details about that. Um, but I'm, you know, being sort of a homesteader, I... I really interested in just sort of like making us more resilient as a community and feeding, you know, people on island. I think that's a huge uh, issue that we could well, really enhance. Um, I, I just heard circumstantially that, you know, in San Diego world, it's very steep slopes where the avocados are planted and that when there are labor shortages, avocado growers feel it most because that's the one of the least pleasant and hardest scramble up into trees that are planted on mega slope um, work, and so it's the least desirable. Can we talk a little bit about um, what it is to manage a collection and, um, well, like, the role of, of nurseries in the local farm community there? Definitely. Uh, um, I mean, I think that's kind of just enhancing the overall diversity of a region. As it, as it feeds into, like, food and using different types of things in the kitchen. And um, 
it just creates like community. Like horticulture does create community because it's around food and what we eat. And uh, you know, managing things is is just you know from a nursery perspective, which is sort of creating a surplus of the homestead, which is like having a part-time nursery, is then allowing the you know, these kind of like more interesting things to trickle into the community, to trickle into farms, yards in, in sort of a haphazard fashion. But then they create sort of a ripple effect as time goes on. Let's see people start recognizing and having a literacy around these things. Like when when do they fruit, you know, what flavor profiles happen and various, you know, fruits or varieties of fruit. And how do we integrate them? And I think we're just in the beginning of those processes. To some extent, as a lot of, you know, sort of root cultures have been degraded by uh, modernity, I suppose, Um, that a lot of, like, things get lost, but then, you know, as we move forward, we have to sort of rebuild and regain some idea around these kind of food Question. Well, can you, I mean, this is a little pokey of a question, but, you know, what are the, what are, would be some restorative practices? Um, restorative? Like, I think, like, that, you know, uh, like, well, restorative is simply is, you know, trees do enhance things just simply by being trees, that they offer an opportunity to, like, hold soil and protect moisture in the landscape and create shade and habitat enhancement. And I think these kind of things, like, are really important as as time moves on. A lot of, like, desertification in the world has happened, the loss of forest wherever we go um, is, you know, intense. Uh, And uh, there's a reason to to do this kind of work. I think it, like, gives me tremendous energy thinking about that. Um, The daunting, you know, task of, like, mitigating climate and planting trees on farms or wherever they can be planted. Um, It's a huge task. It feels like a big part of it is also the appetite of homeowners as a really powerfully untapped um, untapped social force and the transformation of our peri-urban, suburban, and even urban uh, landscaping. And that's obviously been a strong focus of the permaculture movement has been to rethink and, and reorganize the way that um, people relate to their immediate landscape and uh, I mean, I know from visiting your place that your lifestyle as a result of living in a tropical paradise planted your fruit is pretty darn awesome. I wonder um, if you have thoughts about how um, how homesteading homesteading and um, especially, well, I mean, how are we going to get more people on board? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. I think, like, you know, that's, like, the people that seem to be successful and happy in Hawaii are people that garden. And gardens make people happy, and gardening makes people more relaxed. And it makes them appreciate where they where they are. And, you know, connecting, 
you know, through like, you know, protection of like heritage varieties of avocado or whatever, or any other fruit is really important. Um, or, or it's just simply a way to connect between people. I think that it's like, it's like this huge opportunity. And as agricultural lands get broken up more and more into smaller parcels, um, it's, so it's just happening all the time, but I think we could like create more opportunities there, I suppose. Uh, just like more different fruits and more knowledge and like more workshops around that, uh, to kind of pave that way. Cause it's like, it is the homeowner and it is this sort of, sort of small thing that can like drive this thing into a diversified, decentered germplasm. Well, you know, the um, one thing I definitely know is that the Rare Fruit Society in California is a lot of hobby growers, small-scale growers, and that the repository of rare, rare fruits and the genetic diversity is not being managed in official collections only or exclusively or even mostly. It's being held by fanatical people on small parcels who are so de dedicated. And that makes me feel very strong, happy feelings about the resilience and social networks that are carrying um, this crucial germplasm. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of where I started, you know, between the permaculture and California rare fruit growers and realizing that the hobbyists and stuff and were doing so much interesting work just out of their passion, whereas, like, university... Collections and stuff kind of come and go as far as their funding cycles and the people that run them and things change. Although they're they're valuable, you know, resources. But the hobbyists and the backyard people do a lot of really interesting work. And I think like that notion of like a decentered base for germplasm uh, really interests me as well. You know, people would just plant seedlings or farms would create like hedgerows of different seedling fruit orchards. Then they would have something, you know, as a crop to sell, as a, as a part-time crop. But then it also enhances that ability to develop new things. Well, um, I don't know. I'd be I'd be interested to scour through history and get more specific about all the instances in which. Um, you know, commercial crops had to reach into the archive to find older varieties or land race varieties um, to replace imperiled mega breeds. And I know the Cavendish uh, banana is a case study in that. Uh, and that with wine, there's been problems, and with various grain crops, there's been devastating problems, and then quick breeding from the old varieties, and that, that's a major impulse for these universities to maintain um, genetic collections. Uh, and then, but of course, the work of staying in relationship with the plants and continuing to breed the plants in a changing climate and like the continuing evolution, not of archival genetics, but of live in situ dynamic varieties seems like a very rich place we could go exploring. 
Yeah, I mean, there's like countless examples of that in different ways. I mean, uh, you know, the problems we're having, like the sort of like alarmist news stories around bananas, you know, diseases, um, is a little bit like, well, yeah, you know, people have been eating bananas for you know thousands of years through early domestication. There's so many different types of bananas, and people eat all sorts of different kinds of bananas. Just so happens that Cavendish is the only one that. You know, we think we can eat as a commercial variety, and it's just not true. And it just, you know, there's always going to be bananas to eat, whether it's Cavendish or something else. And, you know, we grow, I don't know, upwards of about 25 here. Uh, and mostly, you know, like cooking, using them as green, uh, like, staples, um, which, are, you know, they're pretty interesting uh, in the green stage because they... Um, function as a sort of prebiotic, non-digestible fiber. So you get a lot of nutrition out of them, but they don't uh, trigger the sort of sugar, the spikes. Um, so it's actually, you know, is a really good uh, source of um, starch. Well, one thing that I had when we, uh, at your house that was so amazing, and I never heard of it ever before, but I wanted to tell people about it, and maybe you could explain what it is, but when you took the green bananas and you peeled off the peels with a knife and then you put it in the blender and made it into a slurry and then poured the slurry into a waffle maker. How did yeah, you Yeah, we've been doing a lot of good waffles um, and pizza crust and experimenting mm. with a number of different varieties. Some are a little more fluffy, like pancakes, and some are a little bit more like traditional pizza crust. Um, and they're good, I think. And that's, you know, just sort of being sort of more of a perennial kind of based land gardening concept is that I try to grow those things on bananas, mostly instead of like row crop gardening. So we have bananas. Because you'd rather here. reach up and pick it than reach down and pick it? Yeah, they're pretty, bananas are pretty easy, and it also enhances the fertility and slows the wind down and creates shade and creates, sort of paves the way for other fruit trees to grow really well. And they're really fun to grow. Yeah. Bananas are amazing. Well, I was watching you were using your bananas. Um, you were slicing the trunks down and using them as mulch and weed barriers. And even like swale, swale structures. One thing I learned about bananas is they used to be used to pack butter during the gold rush. The Hawaiian farmers would pack butter into banana trunks and ship it to California for the miners to have butter. Just like very cool sounding. By sale. Yeah, they're in, I mean they're all the different uses for bananas are just insane. I think it's all sorts of things even sort of medicinal qualities to flower bud sap and fiber. And, you know, just from a perspective of establishing fruit trees, they just create this sort of like substrate of muck that the worms and biology, uh, you know, create like just these rich soil just by merely growing bananas for a few years. And then you eventually phase out the bananas and then you have your orchard. Um, and in the meanwhile, like they provide a ton of food for 
and surplus. Um, we always have bananas. We have so many bananas that we just don't know what to do with. Um, well, we have two minutes left, so we have to get off the show. But I wanted to um, encourage listeners to check out the California Rare Fruit Growers and the Hawaii Rare Fruit Growers. And Tom has put some videos uh, up on the links. Um, and to get into the learning mode about successional agroforestry and tree crops, there's various people with various schemes and veins and themes of agroforestry. Tom, you want to just give a tiny call out of some places you might want to start a learning journey? Um, there's so many resources. Uh, you know, the, it's um, Ken Love's site for the Hawaiian Tropical Fruit Growers has a lot of links and information. And then there's um, so there's sort of like areas like in permaculture. There's so many people doing all sorts of things that, you know, it's hard to even say specifically any one source at this point. So it's pretty but, awesome, and it felt to me like there was opportunity for more uh, more awesomeness, that the Maui food scene is bumping, and the grocery store is full of people, and everybody's trying to buy local food. So it felt And like farmer's markets are just like never before, um, just so busy and, and vibrant. Well, there you have it. Move to Maui right away and start growing <laughs> bananas, and... Um, Try and make friends with Tom, and he'll give you some avocados. And everybody, thank you for listening, and thank you for getting on top of getting your almanac right away. Thank you, Heritage. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Tom. Bye. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.